Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. birthday, his 30th birthday, has come and gone, and his cousin John is down in the river, and he's telling people that this Messiah figure that they've been looking for, this, this anointed one, this one that's going to be their new king that's going to rescue them from all the powers that are overthrowing them at the moment, his time has come, and he's here, and about that moment, Jesus walks down the banks of the river he gets into the river with John and asks John to baptize him. And John's like, bro, no, <laughs> like you're supposed to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, you baptize me. And in that moment, John baptizes him. The heavens open up. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. And the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's the first time we see the Trinity. And this was a defining moment for Jesus. This was his anointing. This is when he becomes Messiah, which means anointed one. This is that moment. It's the inauguration of his ministry. It's a very defining moment, but it is not the defining moment. Fast forward three days later, and he's sitting at a wedding, and he's there with some friends, and the wine runs out. And then in this honor-shame culture, this is bad news, right? This, this is shame on the people who are providing the wine. It's shame on the bride and groom. And Jesus is concerned for his friends, right? And so his mother comes to him and tells Jesus to turn, to, to make more wine. And Jesus pushes back. He says, it's not yet my time. But as all mothers do, she's a little bit pushy and tells Jesus, and tells the, the, those who are in charge of serving the wine to listen and do what Jesus says. And of course, you know the story. He turns water into wine. It's his first miracle. It's the initiation of his three years of ministry. It's where, it's where it all kind of starts and takes off. And this was a defining moment for Jesus. But it was not the defining moment. In fact, there's all kinds of, of moments throughout all the Gospels where we read about these moments, moments that were defining, moments that were significant and important. You've got the Sermon on the Mount, where he, and then you have, he feeds the 5,000, the transfiguration, the raising of Lazarus. You've heard the stories. You've read the stories. 
even getting into what we've just, we just uh, celebrated in Holy Week. You've got his triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, he's treated as a king. People laying the branches on, down on the ground underneath his donkey. He enters the city. And this is significant. It's defining. But it's not the defining moment. Even the, the Last Supper or his prayer and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, all significant, all defining, none of them are the moment. Even the crucifixion. Now, before you throw me out as a heretic, listen, let me reason with you, okay? Even Jesus' death, it's significant, it's important, it matters, it's powerful, it's life-changing, but it's not the moment. See, in the hundred years kind of before and after Jesus, we actually have historical evidence that there were other Messiah leaders that raised up claiming to be the anointed one. They, ra- they, they came out of the, the woodwork. They created a following just like Jesus. They were a threat to the Roman government just like D- Jesus. They had, all, they had all the following. They had all the makings that Jesus had, even up to the point where they too were put to death, just like Jesus. But see, there was something different about those Messiah leaders and Jesus. See, all the other Messiah figures, when they were put to death, we have historical evidence that says that they, that, that the, that they did not raise from the dead. See, when they were put to death, what would happen is their group that had, they had raised up to follow them, they would either pick a new leader and say, okay, well, you were, you were that Messiah figure's closest friend. You knew their teachings like they did. You followed them the most. You're our new Messiah figure. Or the group would just disperse and go away. We have multiple examples of this. But there was one Messiah figure that was different. That was Jesus. See, his defining moment, the defining moment that made all the other ones important was when he rose from the dead. That's what we are here celebrating today. See, Jesus, the defining moment for us, the reason Easter is such a big Sunday, the reason we celebrate, the reason people get dressed up, the reason why people go to church two times a year is Easter. Easter is the defining moment. It is the moment that sits apart Christianity. It is the moment that makes all the other defining moments important. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. His death, it atones for our sins because he did not stay dead. His miracles have meaning because he did not stay dead. You want to know why Easter is such a big deal? It's the Sunday that we sit aside so that every Christian on the planet focuses and celebrates the fact that Jesus is risen. This is the defining moment. It's why we have church on Sunday instead of Saturday, which was the original Sabbath. It's why even if you don't follow Jesus, your day is labeled by his name. It's why you care about human rights. When we look at history, it was the people that followed the resurrected Jesus that changed the way and thought that everybody should be treated with dignity. This is the defining moment. This moment, Jesus raising from the dead and his followers dedicating their life to spreading that gospel, that has shaped history because that's what defining moments do. They shape us. Anybody in here 
cuss a little, don't raise your hand. We're in church, okay? If you're, if you're not a part of our life group, you're missing out. We had a, a similar discussion this last week, right? I told somebody, I'm not going to point any fingers, um, that I was going to get them a shirt that says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little, right? <laughs> now, for me, for me, I don't really cuss at all. Um, now, let me say this. Cussing, my, my view of cussing has changed. I used to be afraid that if I said a cuss word, I was going to go to hell for the rest of my life. And my views on that has, ch- has changed. The Bible cares more about how you use your words than what words you use, right? So like if you say the F-bomb after you stub your toe, the, the, that's better than just calling the person that pulled out in front of you stupid. But I'll only say one of those words from the pulpit, Okay. So, but what I'm, the Bible cares more about how you use your words than what words you use. But the reason I don't really cuss all that out, now I'm not going to pretend like it never happens, okay? Give me a break. But the reason I cuss very little, and it's not really a part of my vocabulary, is because of a defining moment that shaped my life. Let me paint the picture, okay? I'm in middle school, and I'm spending the night with my buddy Colby. And he has an older brother who is in high school and his older brother has some friends over. So there's a, there's a group of us middle schoolers and then there's a, a group of high schoolers. And I've always wanted people to like me and think I'm cool. Okay. And middle school was no different. So I spent the whole weekend, this was like, well, Friday into Saturday, and I wanted those high schoolers to like me. I wanted them to think I was cool. So you know what I did? I cussed a lot. <laughs> But the, for some reason, they thought it was funny to hear a middle schooler say all these, dad, close your ears, say all these bad words, right? So, so I, I, I cussed. I mean, we would be, there was like this little creek area. We would go down and we'd play in the water, right? And we were just walking there and I would just yell out random four-letter words for no reason because it made them laugh and they seemed to like me and think I was cool, right? So I, I spent the whole weekend, the whole weekend just saying these words, making people laugh, cussing all the time, Right? And then the next day rolls around, and my mom calls. And she calls, and she says, hey, are you ready for me to pick you up? And I'm like, no, I'm having fun. These high schoolers like me. What are you talking about? I'm not ready to go. And she's like, well, it's time for baseball practice. I'm going to have to come get you. And I looked at my watch, and I realized it was time for me to go. And I was very disappointed about that. And I just spent the whole weekend saying all these words, and it just kind of came, it just, I just reacted and I said a word that rhymes with bam, okay? And, and it came out and my mom said, what did you say? And you know what you got to do, right? You got to pretend like it didn't happen. And so I was like, I said, man, they don't sound anything alike, okay? I wasn't fooled and she was not fooled. What did you say? Man, no, you didn't. And I doubled down. What, I, what was I thinking? I don't know, okay? I was like, yeah, I did. She's like, I'm on my way to get you, right? I hang up the phone. Well, hang up the phone. This is a flip phone, right? And, and I am that moment. Anybody ever been caught red-handed? Like, dude, the shame. My face, my face turns red. I'm like sweaty. Like, not, there's, you go from having a facial to no facial expression whatsoever. Like, you are just, there's just this sheer doom, right? I'm terrified of what's going to happen, but I also feel 
the shame. Like I feel the guilt. I know that what I had been doing was not right. I had already been called into the ministry, okay? I was the preacher kid, but I cussed like a sailor. And I had been caught in that moment, and it was awful. My mom gets there. I get in the car. She's like, what did you say? I realize now that <laughs> there's no getting out of this. And I was like, I cussed and I confessed. And, and it was horrible. The worst baseball practice I've ever had because I didn't receive my punishment until after the practice. She let me sit in that. Like, I think she did it on purpose, right? But I got grounded. But more than, the, more than getting grounded, more than getting in trouble, what I remember is the shame and the guilt from that moment. And so this became a defining moment for me, even when I realized that saying a bad word doesn't send you to hell. I still don't use those words because I remember they come out of my mouth and I remember that shame and that guilt because that's what defining moments do. They shape us. And we all have those defining moments. Some of them, some of them are good, like a new career or a wedding or the birth of a child or a graduation. These defining moments, these achievements, they're good and they shape us. Some of them are bad, like a failed business or an ugly breakup or a bad decision, a significant loss. We all have those defining moments in our life that have shaped us. And Jesus was no different. See, Easter is the most defining moment in history. And all four Gospels tell that story of the resurrection morning. All four Gospels climax with this moment, the moment that Jesus is no longer in the grave and what it means for his followers and all of humanity. And for the sake of time, I'm going to read Mark's account of the Gospel because Mark is very economic in his writing. And within a matter of like four words, we can get a clear picture of these defining moments and how they shape us. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in Mark 16. I'm looking at verses 1 through 8. It says this. Let me take some water. When the, Sabbath was, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go up and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The place where they put him, see the place where they put him, but go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just As he told you, they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. These defining moments shape us. The first way they shape us is by changing our mind. It's pretty interesting. If you go and you read the gospel narratives, you see that over and over again, Jesus told his followers on the third day, I'm going to rise on the third day, on the third day. He says it over and over again. In the gospel of Mark, he says it two times, which doesn't seem like a lot, but 
Mark writes so economically, if he wrote it down twice, it means Jesus said it a hundred times, okay? Over and over and over again, Jesus tells his disciples that I will rise on the third day. Yet what is their reaction? It's the third day. It's the third day. You'd think it would have been like, it would have occurred to them. Hmm, he said, maybe we should go check it out. Maybe we should go see if all those things he said about being on the third day are true. But it didn't occur to any of them. They had, it says that they bought these spices. These spices were ridiculously expensive. And that it was something that they, you would do to anoint the body that had been buried. It was a way of uh, refreshing it, anointing it, honoring it, keeping it. That was part of their custom. And so they, were, they wanted to give Jesus this honorable, dignified burial because they believed he was dead. They, they, they didn't have any kind of concept of him being alive. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis calls the, he talks about chronological snobbery. A lot of people want to critique the gospel and say, well, those people were, they were ancient. They didn't have any concept of, of science. They didn't understand, they believed in miracles. They didn't understand that people don't rise from the dead. They didn't even know about dinosaurs, okay? So they will critique the gospel narratives because they, they have this chronological snobbery. They think that because we are more educated, we know more about the world, that we can understand that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But they, they wouldn't understand that. But when we read the narrative, we see that even though Jesus told them that he was going to rise, they didn't believe it. People coming back to life after being dead was just as impossible then as it is now, right? It was just as absurd for them as it is for us. And in that moment, all the Marys and Salome, they walk, the women, they walk in early in the morning, right? They walk in and they see the evidence. They see the empty tomb. They hear from this message from, from Jesus through the angel to them. And they let the evidence of Jesus' resurrection change their minds. In fact, they, they, in the other gospels, we see that what they do is they run and they tell the others that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. This has altered the way that they now see reality. Jesus' resurrection has shaped them by changing their minds. We're going to sing a song at the end of the service um, called Rattle today. And I want to read the first little um, line of that song. It says, Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. But since when has impossible ever stopped you? Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tune. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? They saw the impossible become possible and it changed their minds about the resurrection. Now it's easy for us to say, yeah, but they were there. They saw it. What we have to understand is there's all kinds of evidence. If you go and you research the historical evidence about the resurrection, it points to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, it's the reason that Mark wrote this gospel. He lists these women by name so that those who read this and hear it, that at the point when he writes it, it means that they're still alive and he wants you to go to the eyewitnesses and ask them about it. He's saying, I'm writing you this message and I'm listing these people by name because it's verifiable. You can go and you can hear their testimony. Now, if he was making this up, one, he wouldn't mention anybody by name, and two, he wouldn't have mentioned women. Like, I know that's controversial to say now, but in this time, women had no credibility. I want to read a quote by, uh, this is by Kelsus. 
Celsus was a Greek philosopher, and he was about 80 years after Jesus, and he hated Christianity. He wrote book after book. He spent his time doing everything he could do to disprove Christianity. And this is what he writes in one of his books. One of the strongest arguments that we have against Christianity, one of the reasons that we know that Christianity can't be true, is because the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. Whoa, (laughs) fighting words, right? But what's crazy is he wrote these words and everybody was like, oh yeah, that's true. That's a a problem. Listen, there there are good Christian people with a healthy view of God and a healthy view of scripture and a healthy view of women who disagree with me. They understand, and when they read scripture, they understand it to limit the role of pastor to men only. One of the reasons that I don't come to that conclusion is because of this narrative. The first person to ever preach the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus' resurrected body, of Jesus no longer being in the grave, is a woman. She goes to the disciples and she says, listen to this good news. The one you've been following, the one that you thought was dead, the one who was gone. Now you're in, it's Holy Saturday. You you felt that anxiety. You felt that depression. You thought he was the one and now he's dead. What are we going to do now? He's no longer dead. He rose from the grave. We have victory. We have victory over death. We can be made new because our minds have been changed by the evidence. If Mark was making this up, he would not have included those details. They let the evidence change their mind. Will you let the evidence change yours? The next way that the resurrection shapes us is not just by changing our mind, but changing our hearts. And the angel says, go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. Now, the best way to see the grace and how it changed their hearts is to think about what Jesus didn't say. You remember Holy Week? Everybody's following him. They believe him. They trust he's the Messiah. He's told them they're going to raise from the dead. He's told them he's going to raise from the dead. And then when he dies, they run. They turn their back on him. They de- Peter denies him. They did everything to hurt Jesus' feeling to stab him in the back, to not be there for him. Jesus could have said, you go to the angel, go tell those faithless backstabbing cowards that I might see them. I might see them when they go ahead, only if they sulk and beg. You know, if they really grovel and feel bad for what they did. If, if they act pitiful enough, I might, then I might reinstate them back into my movement. Because I rose from the dead. I've got a movement, but they turn their back on me. If they, if they look pitiful enough, then I'll forgive them. That's what we would have done. Let's be honest. That's how we would have reacted. But that's not how Jesus works. For us, yeah, you have a fight with your spouse or a coworker or a friend, and we say, well, if you repent, and I, and I don't just mean say, say you're sorry, but you show me how sorry you really are, then I'll forgive you. Then I'll let you back in. But that's not how Jesus works. That's not how he acts. He says, I love you and I forgive you. And that makes it possible for you to repent. He does the first action. 
You get that? He's not, he's not sitting around and waiting for you to get your life together. He's not sitting around and waiting for you to, to get over that addiction, to break free from whatever that is. He's not waiting on you to cry because you feel so guilty. He's not waiting on you to change or make things right before he loves you. He says, I'm going ahead of you. I've got a movement and I will see you and I want you to be a part of that movement. He forgives them before they repent. Jesus is not holding your past against you. He wants you now and his love and his resurrection, it's what drives us to surrender our life. It's what drives us to, for, to repent and follow him. And it's interesting. He says, go and tell my disciples and Peter. Why would he say, and Peter is one of the disciples. Why would he say, and Peter? I think this is significant because we all know that Peter was really bad. (laughs) Like of all the disciples, he's the one that we know denied Jesus. He, Peter goes from cutting off a dude's ear in the garden to lying to a teenage girl because he's scared of what might happen to him. That's what happens to Peter through this whole process. So imagine you're in that situation, right? Go and tell my disciples. So they go and they're like, hey, guys, 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 Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. He wants you all to come, come meet him. He wants you all to come over here. Peter's going to be like, no way. I get it. Okay, you guys go. There's no way Jesus really means that about me. There's no way Jesus really did that for me. And Jesus knows that Peter's going to have those thoughts. He knows that's how he's going to feel. So Jesus mentions him by name. Jesus is saying, my redemption and my grace is for everyone. Yes, even you, Peter. Yes, even you who think you are too broken for Jesus' grace. You are not too far gone. You are not too addicted. You are not too old. You are not too rebellious. You are not too out of reach for Christ. His resurrection changes our mind and it changes our heart. And the last way it shapes us is by changing our future. It says two things, do not be afraid and go. These are all about the future. It's about what you're going to be facing. It's about what is ahead of you. The resurrection changes the way we think about the future. The resurrection doesn't mean that someday you're going to die and you get to go to heaven and you'll get some special prize for everything you gave up here. The resurrection means that God is going to renew this material world. Paul tells us that Jesus is the first fruit. The way that he rose from the dead and came back in a human body is that is the future for each and every one of us that follow Jesus. Our future is not playing some hymns, getting a pair of wings, becoming an angel floating on the clouds, playing the harp. Our future is this material world made new. The best way I could think to illustrate this is an illustration I've used before, but it's from uh, Johnny Erickson. And this is a, a young lady who, when she was 17, she was in a diving accident that caused her to become a paraplegic. She's paralyzed from the neck down. And she's a part of this highly liturgical church. So she would go to church each and every Sunday. She writes about this in one of her books. She goes to church each and every Sunday. And they get, there comes a point in the service where the priest has everybody kneel down and say a prayer together. And each and every time it got to that point where they would kneel down, she talks about how she would just bust out in tears. Because going to church would remind her that she is paralyzed and in a wheelchair and unable to kneel 
And one day it happened again, but this time instead of tears, she decided to read and pray the prayer that everyone else was praying. And it happened to be about the resurrection. And all of a sudden it hit her. She writes it like this in her book. I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel down quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get up on my feet and I'm going to dance. She continues on. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who has a spinal cord injury like me? Can you imagine the hope of someone who's just manic depressive? No other religion or philosophy promises us new bodies, not just new minds and hearts. It's only the gospel of Jesus. It's only in the gospel of Jesus that people like me find such enormous hope to live. Heaven is not an escape from reality. It is a new reality. Your future in Christ, like I said, is not floating on clouds, singing boring songs, which is a picture that I got of it when I was a kid, right? Heaven is going to be ordinary life, transformed, made new. It's going to be living your life in a perfect, sinless world where everything is thriving. There's no physical pain. There's no mental illness. There's no cancer. There's no pneumonia. There's no dementia. All is made right and all is perfect. Someone once asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? You know what his response was? I would plant a tree. What? Do you know how good it would do? The fact that there would be no restrictions on that tree, that it would grow and thrive and produce the most amazing fruit you've ever tasted because that's what's going to happen. We're going to be in a new world. Our mind doesn't go there because so often we think that heaven is just an alternate escape from this reality. But no, it will be new, ordinary life, transformed, made new, and it will be spectacular. Jesus' resurrection changes our future. We look forward to one day being resurrected in glorified bodies just like him. So the gospel, the good news that he is risen, it changes us. It changes us. The way it, the way it shapes us is by changing our identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. I want to close with this. You have had your defining moments, some high and some low. But those defining moments do not define you. Yes, they shape you, but they are not your identity. You have been changed in heart and mind and in future by the identity and the defining moment of Jesus. I, uh, growing up, this is my last illustration, okay? I'm wrapping it up here, I promise. Growing up, cutting the grass was my responsibility, right? And so I was cutting the grass. I had done it a few times. I had been coached and trained on how to use the lawnmower. And uh, there's this specific section in our yard that has uh, these big roots on it, right? And so I've been told, 
watch out for these roots over and over again. All right, there's a little lever on the side of the, the lawnmower. When you get to these roots, you pick up the plates so that you don't run into these roots and break everything, right? I, and I'd been coached. I'd been shown. I knew how to do it. I was cutting the grass. I'd done it successfully a few times. But on this particular day, I had my headphones in and I had my CD player. That's right, CD player. And I, <laughs> and I had, had it tucked into the, the, my, the pockets of my shorts and it was way too big, all right? You got, we don't know how blessed we are now. And I got my CD player and I'm jamming. I don't remember what it is, but I'm jamming, okay? It was probably like Mariah Carey or something. No, I'm kidding, okay. <laughs> but I'm jamming and I'm going, I'm rocking out, I'm listening to this music and then bam, I hit the roots. It bent the, the guard in front of the rail in, it hit the blade, cracked the blade. It was like a couple hundred dollars worth of damage. And I just remember, I remember being absolutely devastated. And now this moment is not really that big of a deal. It happens. But I remember going into my room and it was like, I just said to myself over and over again, I suck. (laughs) You're an idiot. You knew better. You're such a failure. And then from that moment on, I would get into moments in life where I would fall short or I would fail, or I wouldn't accomplish something. And I would go back to that lawnmower moment. And it would be like proof. Be like, see, you knew it then and you know it now. And I would beat myself up. And I had my identity as this failure, as this person that doesn't know what they're doing. And every time something would go wrong, I could go back to that moment and know it was true. But what the gospel does is it changes us. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, and it gives us a new identity. Because Jesus is risen, I am redeemed. And it doesn't matter if I have failed before. It doesn't matter if I have fallen short. My identity is not in anything other than Jesus. Jesus's defining moment means that our moments aren't defining. I went on to cut hundreds of more yards successfully. I wasn't a failure, even though I thought I I was. You can't let the little things in your life, whether they're good or bad, define who you are. Our identity has to be in the resurrected King Jesus. His defining moment is what defines us. If If there's a leader in this room, think about your leadership. Think about the role that you've played at work or in the home, and you may have had a moment of insecurity, but that does not make you an insecure leader. Think of if you're a parent, there may have been a moment while you were raising your kids or you come across something and you just don't know what to do or how to handle that situation. That does not mean that you do not know what you are doing because our moments don't define us. Jesus's moment is what defines us. You may be battling loneliness, but you are not alone. You may be battling loss, but you are not defeated. You may be battling temptation, but you are not overcome. You may be striving for some kind of big accomplishment. Even if you achieve it, that is not what defines you. Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb is empty, and that is the defining moment, both for him, for history, and for you. When you surrender your life to Christ and you declare him as Lord, you follow him, you are not defined by those moments. You are defined by him. That's the good news of the resurrection. We have hope and victory and glory in him. So here's the question. Have you surrendered your life to him? Is he Lord of your life? Have you allowed the Easter moment to define who you are? If not, now is the time. We're going to have the, the, our vocalists come back up here. 
And we're going to sing that song, Rattle. I would encourage you, if you follow Jesus, to let this song be an anthem. Let it be an Easter anthem for you that Jesus is no longer in the grave, that he has risen victorious. And if he is not Lord of your life, why not now? Why not surrender all that you are to him?